Thank you for your prayers, Margaret. If you've got a Bible, uh, please open it up to Ezra chapter 8. And before we look at that, let's uh, ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your son, uh, who we sung about earlier, uh, a friend to sinners such as us. Uh, we thank you for your redeeming love that, that nothing in life can separate us from. And we pray knowing that uh, we, we pray that knowing that would lead us to, to humbly depend on you in everything we do. Father, it's a privilege every time we open up your word, and we pray that as we do this morning, you would use our time in Ezra to grow our confidence in you and our humility before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're nearing the end of our series uh, in the book of Ezra, and we'll be finishing next week with chapters 9 and 10. But this morning we're in chapter 8, and I've really enjoyed going through uh, a part of God's Word that that many of us are less familiar with. Uh, Ezra is a book that covers about 100 years of the history of God's people, and in many ways it's a book of restoration. We've seen in the first six chapters that it's about the restoration of the the temple in Jerusalem, uh, which had been lying in ruins for decades. The last four chapters are about the restoration of the people of God as they return to the land of Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. Uh, Last week we finally saw Ezra introduced. He is the man who who leads the restoration of God's people. Uh, We saw he studied God's law, he obeyed it, and he taught it to others. Ezra leads the return of the second group of people from this exile. And in chapter 7, we saw how this second return under Ezra came about. Now, chapter 8 focuses more on the journey itself. It begins by by listing the names of of the family heads and and the number of men who travelled with Ezra on this journey to Jerusalem. There are 14 verses of names, and Ezra has, has got them all together in this one place. And we're going to pick up the reading in in verse 15, and Sarah's going to bring us that now. Thanks, Sarah. Today's reading is from Ezra chapter 8, starting at verses 15 through to 36. I assembled them at the canal that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So I summoned Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerub, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and Joyarab, and Elnathan, who were men of learning. And I sent them to Ido, leader in Casaphia. I told them what to say to Ido and his kinsmen, the temple servants in Casaphia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 men, and 19 and Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 20 men. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. 
there by Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road, because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, together with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brothers, and I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold, and the articles that the king, his advisers, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 derricks, and two fine articles of polished bronze, as precious as gold. I said to them, You as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles into the hands of Miramoth, son of Uriah, the priest Eleazar, son of Phineas, was with him, and so were the Levites, Josabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Benui. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at the time. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, who, gave them, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. So we're, we're thinking about this journey back to Jerusalem, and we heard about the, the two problems in that reading that, that Ezra and God's people face. Firstly, there are no Levites, and secondly, there's a, journey, a, a dangerous journey ahead with no military support. Now we'll think about those things in, in some detail, and then we'll think about why Ezra and the Israelites respond to these problems with confidence and humility. Uh, and reflect on what God might intend for us with, with a passage like this. So, so let's think about the two problems that are highlighted in this chapter. Uh, the first one is there in verse 15. Ezra checks among the people and the priests, but there are no Levites' presence. Uh, and the question that comes to mind is, is, why does that matter? Well, the Levites were crucial for worship at the temple. They, they were the only ones qualified to carry out the temple duties. Uh, imagine turning up to an event, but but 
the key stuff aren't there, and no one really knows what's supposed to happen. Uh, what, that's what might happen if there were no Levites. Uh, they were irreplaceable when it came to worshipping God at the temple. They, they facilitated the worship in the way God prescribed it. But for some reason, not one can be found among those who want to return. And it doesn't tell us why, but I can't help but feel that, that part of the, unknown, uh, the unknownness of the journey made it less desirable. Going to Babylon isn't, uh, isn't like, uh, sorry, going to Jerusalem isn't like jumping on a plane for a few hours. It's, it's four months away, leaving behind everything that you've known. Head to this place that's supposed to be home. But most of these people would have never been to Jerusalem. It would have been their, their grandparents or, or maybe their great-grandparents' uh, generations who were taken uh, captive in Babylon. Babylon was their home now. It was, it was all they knew. People uh, like Ezra have remained faithful to God even in the exile and they've been waiting for this chance to return home to Jerusalem. But maybe that wasn't the case for everyone. Now if you've ever known if all you've ever known is is life in Babylon then it's probably hard to let that go Jerusalem seems seems miles away uh, and it's going to mean disruption living like nomads and, and hoping that there's a place to settle back in Jerusalem when you've set yourself up for life in, in one place it can be very hard to, to let go and move on can't it uh, many of us would have experienced that leaving behind places where we've made memories uh, or, or we have possessions or, or familiarity, that it's never easy to, to let go of those things. Some might feel like that as we uh, head into a, a new venue in a couple of weeks. Uh, and it would make sense if, if that was one of the things, stopping the Levites from returning with their fellow Israelites. Perhaps they're afraid of the change, so they decide to stay put, afraid of the unknown. But perhaps it's even worse than that. Uh, perhaps it's an attitude that's not uncommon today. God's people becoming too comfortable in, in the Babylon that is our world. Uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 17, uses Babylon to refer to all that is worldly. Babylon is influential, it's, it's impressive, it's powerful. It's this type of worldliness that God's people are still up against uh, to this very day. Jesus calls us to be in the world but not of the world, which is very hard for us because the world is so attractive in many ways. And it could be that the Levites have found something in Babylon that's, that's kept them there, a, a way of life that's too attractive to let go of. Now, the Levites, they were, they were servants. They, they serve God's people. It could be that they're enjoying that, that freedom that they now have. When others give in to Babylon, it's, it's very easy to lose heart. Uh, we see that from time to time as Christians. There, there are so many opportunities uh, for the gospel to grow and for God's people uh, to grow as well. But often people aren't willing to turn away from Babylon, uh, for, from the allure of the world, in order to pursue those opportunities. Hearts that are, are more captivated by the world than by God. Well, what does Ezra do? Uh, we see that he, he carries on with his task. He, he looks for a solution. He sends a group of men to a place called Kasiphia and to a leader called Ido. And it must have been a place close to Babylon where, where a large number of Jews were living. And thankfully, Ido answers the call. He, he generously sends Levites and temple servants so that when they eventually get to the temple, uh, they'll be able to worship God as God intended. 
So, so the first problem's been dealt with. They, they've got the manpower in the form of the Levites, but before they set off, Ezra's aware that, that there's a second problem that lies ahead, which is even more daunting. He knows it's, it's three and a half or four months uh, of a journey that, that lies ahead. Uh, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day who was, who was thinking of walking the, the length of the South Island. Now, the thought of driving that far is, is pretty daunting for me, but, but walking it is a completely different level. It, it's about 1,400 kilometres. And it's a very similar distance to how far God's people were going to travel. But for God's people, it's, it's not as well laid out. There, there's no dock huts on the way, no, no instructions. Uh, they didn't know what dangers would arise or, or when they would arise. We've heard that they have enemies who would love nothing more than to stop them getting to Jerusalem. There are bandits on the road who would, who would probably do anything to get their hands on that gold and silver. Uh, and they probably don't know what life is going to look like in Jerusalem if they ever make it there. The risks of this journey are there, but it's nothing that the king's protection uh, wouldn't solve. But Ezra has said some, some bold words to the king at the time, King Artaxerxes, uh, which we saw in verse 22. Uh, this is what he said. We had, we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all those who forsake him. And because Ezra said those words, he felt it would have been shameful to ask the king for, for military help to protect them, to protect them on this journey. If, in his mind, it would have been the wrong thing to do as if he was forsaking God by, by relying on the king's military might. Now, we know that the, uh, the book of Ezra and the, and the book of Nehemiah go together, and when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, some, something like 14 years later, he goes uh, with the king's military support, and, and it's not seen as a bad thing. And, and the obvious question is, why the different approaches? Why is it okay for, for Nehemiah, but not for Ezra? Well, in chapters 7 and 8, there are, there are five times where Ezra mentions that the hand of God is on his people. Uh, chapter 7 and verses uh, 9 and 28, and then in chapter 8 and verses 18, verse 22, and finally verse 31. See, this journey has, has such a strong emphasis on God helping his people uh, that it seems that Ezra sees it as a matter of faithfulness on his part to trust that God will do just that. It's a very different situation to, to that of Nehemiah. Ezra sees God as being the reason for this return to Jerusalem. So, so why stop trusting him now? There's a tension there, isn't there? Uh, often God helps his people through others, but there are times where it's right uh, to not put our hopes in the hands of the world and to trust God alone. And we need wisdom to know when either of those things, is those responses is more appropriate. Now Ezra isn't arrogant and kind of presuming that God will help. He calls for a fast and he, he asks God for a safe journey. And the way the world works is often like this. I'll do something for you, but, but only if, if you do something for me in return. Almost like, like holding someone ransom. And it happens uh, more often in life than we realize. But that's not the way a relationship with our God works. See, they fast in order to, to humble themselves before God, to, to acknowledge their dependence on God, especially as they begin to get hangry. Uh, fasting isn't, isn't something we hear much about uh, these days, uh, unless it's for the 40-hour famine, which I know some of our households uh, here have been involved in this weekend, and, and I do hope 
you made it through that. Uh, but maybe we don't hear much about fasting because it's, it isn't done to, to draw attention to ourselves. It's about humble dependence on our God. In humility, they ask God for safe passage to Jerusalem. They say, God, if, if it's your will, please, please get us there safely. And Ezra and the others want, want their actions to match their words about God. So Ezra's worried that his testimony would be seen to be words that he didn't believe if he asked for protection. So he, he resists asking for the king's help. Now on the 12th day of the month, they, they finally set off to Jerusalem with, with all the funds and God answers their prayers. He protects them uh, and they make it there safely. And, and everything is miraculously accounted for at the temple, despite all these odds being stacked against them. And as we think on, on Ezra 8, I, I particularly want us to reflect on, on that phrase that we see Ezra use again and again in these last two chapters. What difference does it make for you knowing the hand of God is on you? Knowing the hand of God is on his people transforms the way we view life. It transforms the way we approach the problems of life. Uh, I think Ezra shows us two things that help us as God's people today. Firstly, the hand of God on his people gives us deep confidence in him. Secondly, that the hand of God on his people brings us humbly before him. So, so firstly, the hand of God brings us deep confidence in him. Ezra's confidence in God is, is the kind of thing that's uh, hard to explain because it's a confidence we see in, in Christians at, at some of the, the most problematic times in their lives. When they're wrestling with the challenge of, of loved ones who turn away from the Lord, uh, the, the diagnosis of a terminal illness, confidence in God through the loss of employment, through the infertility diagnosis, uh, the, the career plans that fall through, the difficult marriage, the loss of a, a parent or a child or a spouse. These are things that, that can f affect us like, like nothing else in life. But there's this confidence that comes knowing the hand of your maker is on you even through things like this. Confidence God will work for the good of those who turn to him. It's a confidence I've, I've seen in uh, people here that, that often blows me away. It's a confidence that we see in Ezra, despite the problems that arose and that lay ahead. The lack of Levites would have been discouraging. Uh, for whatever reason, they didn't make it. The uncertainty of the journey would have, would have made most people tremble. How does your confidence about God's hand on your life change the way that you view the problems that come your way? Do the problems of life cause you to, to lose confidence in God or, or to gr draw closer to him? Ezra has a, a confidence in the, in the bigger plans that God has and his confidence allows him to, to keep going even as these unexpected things pop up. So the hand of God on his people brings us confidence. Secondly, the hand of God on his people brings us humbly before him. Uh, the two problems that Ezra faces, the, the first is, is inconvenient, it's, it's disruptive, but the second is potentially life-threatening. There's a lot more seemingly at stake. And some of us will have faced the, the inconvenient problems of life, but, but haven't yet faced some of these life-altering problems that will, will no doubt come our way. 
Uh, there's a reason to be thankful for that. Others here will have, will have faced it all. But, but sometimes we can end up pridefully thinking that if we're not facing the problems that others face, it's because we're doing something right in life. Or uh, we're facing these problems because we're doing something wrong in life. And both of these ways of thinking can be wrong. See, humility before God is acknowledging that he is the one who is in control. That while we don't know the reasons why, why life goes the way it goes, God does. And it's humbly asking him for his help uh, through all of life because he is the one who is able to help, uh, the one whose hand is over us. There's no better place for a Christian to find an example of, of humility than in the life of the Lord Jesus. Paul tells us that he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Uh, Jesus, the one who sacrifices life, his life for us rather than trying to preserve it. Remember Jesus' humble prayer as he was about to be betrayed and then crucified. Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours. See, Ezra prayed and God responded favorably. Uh, the people made it safely to Jerusalem. Jesus prayed and he ended up suffering the most inhumane of deaths for the sin of others. Now, in both of these cases, God was ultimately working for the good of his people. True humility before God is, is trusting that he is working in a way that, that's best for us, despite all the appearances otherwise. This is something that is uh, summed up beautifully in the words of uh, this thing called the, the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, it's not as intimidating as it sounds, uh, and, and, and it regards the, the hand of God on the lives of his people. It's a document that was written in the 16th century and contains some incredible truths regarding the Christian faith. Uh, let me read some of it. The almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now, how does this help? Uh, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that nothing in creation will, will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Wonderful biblical truths that, that help us as we seek to, to confidently, yet humbly, remember the hand of God over us as we live for him. Now the last thing I just want to touch on as we close, uh, verse 22 is even more true than, than Ezra knew when he said it. The gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Now the first half of that verse is a, a lot more palatable for, for many of us than, than the second half. Uh, there's a TV show, uh, which someone put us on it, called uh, This Is Us, where, where a man was adopted uh, soon after birth. And his adopted mum knew about his, his birth parents, but decided against telling him uh, in case she would lose him when he found his biological parents. 
And at times in his life, he, he thinks about looking for his birth parents, but he has no idea where to start. All the while, his adopted mum decides to, to keep the information to herself. Uh, in the end, the, the man finds out years and years later, and he's so devastated that, that his mum uh, kept this truth from him. Now, as Christians, we can sometimes fall into the trap of, of withholding part of the truth uh, of a verse like, like verse 22. Telling people God's great anger is against those who, who forsake him is, is a pretty daunting thing. That they risk facing God's just judgment for eternity. Often we don't know where to start. And, and like uh, the adoptive mum, we fear the consequences. Sometimes we don't want to risk, uh, risk losing the relationship. But, but as a result, we fail to see the devastation we're leaving behind by, by keeping people from this truth. There are only two options in that verse. We are either those who, who humbly look to God, who have the gracious hand of our God over us, or we are those who forsake him and will face his great anger. Uh, which side of, of that verse are, are you on? I hope and pray that each of us knows uh, the blessing of having the hand of God on us and that we'd also see the importance of helping others to see the danger of, of forsaking God and his anger that they will face if they do. The hand of God is on us. May we be confident in him. May we be humble before him. And may we be bold as we share these truths with others. Amen.